commonly tasawwuf is referred to as sufism in the western world and in the muslim world as tasawwuf even though this name originated after the companions ali muridwan because the name originated after the companions ali muridwan the subject of tasawwuf has never ceased being a subject of controversy some debated the name others debated the essence and the very concept of tasawwuf the definition and name of tasawwuf has been debated some have decided to give other names like tazkiyah purification of the soul and many other different titles but the actual essence of tasawwuf is mentioned by al-imam abdul wahhab al-sha'rani rahimahullah ta'ala in his work asrar arkan al-islam which is secrets of the pillars of islam in that work in one line he states that the very essence of tasawwuf or the very definition of tasawwuf is to practice al-quran al-karim and the sunnah of the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam so in effect the definition of tasawwuf would be practicing the book of allah and the sunnah of the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wa alihi wasallam ahmad zarruq rahimahullah in his book qawaid at-tasawwuf he has qawaid uh, which is rules and regulations of tasawwuf in that work he mentions the reasons as to why tasawwuf has multiple names because the subject is vast any subject which is vast will have many names so because the subject itself is vast therefore tasawwuf has many different names but looking at the definition of al-imam abdul wahhab al-sha'rani rahimahullah which is the very definition of tasawwuf is acting upon the book of allah and the sunnah of the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam this would also include dealing with the ailments of the heart the illnesses of the heart the diseases of the heart does fiqh which is jurisprudence cover this also we would say yes but acting on this is called tasawwuf we would say jurisprudence is theory and acting is pra- pra- doing this in the practical terms is tasawwuf this would be the correct definition so learning about the ailments of the heart the diseases of the heart is fiqh jurisprudence acting upon that is termed as being tasawwuf now when we analyze tasawwuf and sufi groups today first we would have to look at those matters which we all agree upon any muslim who has a fair mind an objective methodology will agree with the following points firstly that many people need a group and guidance for them to stay steadfast on the religion there are many people who come out of prison have never learned their basics of islam or may have grown up in a family where they were never taught the basics of islam 
and then come into contact with a group of people with whom they can learn the basics of Islam and practice Islam by staying in the company of good people. This group of people may have one sheikh, one uh, leader or multiple leaders and this group of people may be based in a masjid or in a, in a center or may not even have a masjid or a center, just a group of people, a group of friends or even an organization. So many people are in need of groups, of good company and of guidance, of leaders. This is a fact. This is what makes the market ripe for good people to take on students and also for people who are charlatans to take on students. So the market is ripe because there are so many people who have this need. They need uh, guidance in spirituality. They need guidance in learning about beliefs. They need guidance uh, regarding so many different aspects of life from guidance in marriage to divorce to spiritual ailments, to problems with jinn, to problems with magic, to problems with, uh, with health. They will need guidance from Al-Quran Al-Kareem and the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah This is why there has always been a need for groups and organizations and for scholars and sheikhs and imams to give guidance regarding these things. Secondly, being a part of an organization or a group gives organization to a person's life. This is why many people do not leave an organization or a group or a silsila, a tariqa. These are terms given to Sufi groups. Why? Because they have organization in their life. If they were not associated with a specific sheikh, unfortunately, the way so many people have been nurtured, especially in Sufi circles is that they will not pray five times a day if they were not associated with certain groups. This is the unfortunate uh, state that we are in because this has been going on for decades where people depend on a spiritual guide for them to practice the very basics of Islam. When in reality, in real tasawwuf, people would practice the basics of Islam and then were accepted in a Sufi order. But in today's day and age, these two realities cannot be ignored. This is why a total dismissal of organizations or Sufi groups or Sufi sheikhs cannot be done because there are so many dependents of those, gr of those uh, groups, organizations and Sufi sheikhs that if these groups were disbanded, then so many people would fall to the side and would be unable to practice the very basics of Islam. But how do we cure this problem? We will go on to later. So this first uh, proposition is regarding those matters which we all agree upon. Even people who ascribe themselves to uh, the modern Salafi movement will agree with these points. That there are young people who need a group of pious people around them at all times for them to practice Islam. Number two, there are matters that are based upon ijtihad and therefore are disputed. What do we mean by ijtihad? Ijtihad refers to a legal effort of qualified people. 
that qualified people exert their efforts in attaining a position, an opinion, or giving a position for the benefit of the people. They may have a source for this from the Quran and the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah This would fall under disputed issues. Example of this is for instance litanies, adhkar, certain uh, shiyukh, sheikhs will give their students uh, litanies to read by saying read 5,000 times the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at this particular time of the day. Now this particular order will not be found explicitly in the Quran and the Sunnah. But the Shaykh will have taken this from a qualified person who exerted his efforts and realized that by saying the name, pronouncing the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala a certain number of times may have a certain effect on the spiritual state of a particular individual. So this, why would this fall under disputed issues? Because certain jurists may differ with the shaykh and say this is impermissible because this has no origin in the Quran and the Sunnah. But the shaykh may say it does have an origin in the Quran and the Sunnah because the Messenger of Allah exhorted people, encouraged people to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Al-Quran al-Kareem itself exhorts people to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So therefore this would fall under a disputed issue. What I mean by disputed issue is not that we condemn these acts. I'm saying that these are acts which are debatable among certain scholars, but we cannot go to individual people who practice these acts and condemn them because they are actually debated. Another example, supererogatory worship, additional worship. So, for instance, someone may pray 100 cycles of nafal every day, nafal meaning optional cycles of prayer, additional to their obligation, obligatory prayers. This is an act of ijtihad which they see as a benefit other than those optional prayers which are from the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Or for instance, khalwa. Khalwa is seclusion. Some scholars uh, and Sufi sheikhs will place their students in a seclusion in a room and will say to them that you must recite the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this room for three days. They will find an origin for this from the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah What they give as a proof for this is that the Messenger of Allah went into Ghari Hira, the cave of Hira, in Jabal nur in the mountain, uh, mountain of light, prior to prophecy, uh, meaning the revelation of the Qur'an, and the announcement of prophecy. And the Messenger of Allah would sit in the cave and contemplate regarding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this action is also based upon ijtihad. There are other actions also like uniforms. Certain groups give uniforms to their students. This practice, however, was condemned also. Who was it condemned by? By Al-Hafidh Ahmad bin Hajar Al-Haytami rahimahullah ta'ala in his commentary on the 40 hadith of Nawawi rahimahullah. But other 
uh, Sufi guides considered giving a uniform to their students permissible. So this again falls under an act of ijtihad, exerting one's effort for an opinion which may be permissible and according to others may be impermissible. Or for instance, giving bay'ah, oath of allegiance. Now towards the end, I will mention regarding what some people say that it is obligatory for people to give bay'ah, oath of allegiance, to a, a Sufi guide. Is it obligatory upon people to give oath of allegiance to a Sufi guide? Again, this was a matter of ijtihad and this is mentioned by Sidi Ahmed Zarruq ta'ala in his book, Uddatul Muridi Sadiq. That some Sufi guides, when the students will come to them, some of them will not have even done tawbah, repentance for their sin. What does tawbah mean? Tawbah doesn't mean just saying I renounced my sins with the mouth. No. If you know that someone is a drug dealer or sells alcohol and he attends your gathering and he says, I want to give bay'ah, oath of allegiance to the shaykh and the shaykh says to him, do tawbah, repent for your sins. And he says, I do tawbah for my sins. Then he leaves that gathering and continues with his impermissible trade. This will not be considered tawbah. This would be considered a wrong deed of the shaykh. And Sidi Ahmed Zarruq ta'ala condemns this practice. He states that some of the charlatan, the shaykhs, they will accept students who were highway bandits, people who were thieves. And they will accept them into the Sufi order and yet they will continue with their old practices. This is very common today as well. So taking bay'ah, oath of allegiance, was an act of ijtihad of certain mashaykh, certain scholars, that they would say, we take the oath of allegiance, bay'ah, yet some scholars disagreed with this. So this is not an issue of agreement, not an issue of ijma', consensus. The reason for mentioning this short list is that people do not confuse issues of ijtihad with issues of usul principle. There are so many issues of ijtihad that scholars place effort in reaching an opinion that people confuse with issues of usul. I'll give my own example. Many years ago, in a masjid in Birmingham, I was seated and someone came up to me and said there is a Palestinian brother here who disagrees with us switching off the lights and moving our heads and saying the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now these two individuals were debating one another. I ask you, is this an issue of principle or is it an issue of subsidiary matters for all? Which one of the two? Which one? Meaning subsidiary, meaning furor. Is it something people should be debating? Is the other person entitled to the opinion that he disagrees with the practice of switching off the lights and moving his head? He is entitled. What has happened with so many Sufi orders is that they debate these subsidiary issues as if they are issues of principle. It is permissible for someone to disagree with switching off the lights and moving the head during dhikr, meaning remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because it is not an issue of principle. It is not an issue of usul deen principles of religion. So people must make a clear distinction between those things which are 
from Usuluddin principal issues of religion and those issues which are differed over. Just to sum this second point, uh, I would recommend the book of Sheikh Abdul Qadir Isa Rahmallahu Ta'ala, The Realities of Sufism, which is available in English. In this book, he discusses these disputed issues. He presents proof for each stance that he takes. For instance, he may advocate chanting uh, the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he will give his proof for this act. But these are issues which should not be debated amongst people. These are scholarly disputes that can be debated amongst scholars. But people who join Sufi groups, what they tend to do is that they will give proof for the color of the scarf that they wear. They will give proof for the type of hat that they wear. They will give proof for the type of dhikrullah, the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala they do. They may stand up and chant the name of Allah or jump up and down and chant the name of Allah or move their head from side to side and chant the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or they may switch off the lights and remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Some of them may use musical instruments and Remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All these actions do not fall under usuluddin principles of religion. Yet they are debated amongst Sufi groups today as if they are principal matters. This moves me on to my third point, which is regarding those issues which do not even fall under disputed matters. For instance, a certain adherent of a Sufi group believes his sheikh, his guide is the man of the time, whatever that may mean. Or he believes his sheikh is the ghoth, which is a term used to describe a spiritual station. Or qutub, which means the pole. The person will debate this issue as if it is from usuluddin, principles of religion. I ask you, does this not lead to discord amongst Muslims? Does this not lead to fanaticism amongst Muslims? That even scholars who study outward knowledge dispute outward knowledge which could be measured. For instance, if someone states, I have memorized Sahih al-Bukhari, you can test him. You can make him sit down and recite the Sahih from the back of his mind, from his heart. But if someone claims, I have regular meetings in the unseen with the Ghoth and the Qutub and the Abdal, can you measure this? Is this measurable? Can you weigh this? This is just a claim. So debating this claim as if it is to do with usuluddin, principles of religion, is what leads to schism, is what leads to discord amongst Muslims. This brings me to the third aspect, which is that Sufi orders today, many of them, have positions which oppose ijma' consensus or the mind, the rational mind, the rational faculty. And this takes three forms. By the way, this segment of the lecture is very important. If you want to recognize a false group or you want to recognize a charlatan, these three principles would have to be in your mind and you must be aware of them you'll be able to recognize any false group or any charlatan. 
Principle number one, two, and three. Uh, after going through these, uh, just stating the principles, <clears throat> after the prayer we will continue each principle in detail. Number one, blind conformity in aqidah or absolutely everything. Principle number one. Principle number two, opposition to Al-Qur'anul Kareem or As-Sunnatul Nabawiyyah, the prophetic way, or Ijma' consensus. Principle number three, lack of transparency and use of deception. If you find any one of these three things in a group or a sheikh or a leader, you will know that there is something wrong with that group. Now, after the prayer, inshallah, I will go through each principle and examples of each principle, how these examples apply with Sufi groups today that have deviated from the Salaf, As-Salafu Salihun, the pious predecessors. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa afdalu salati wa tammu taslim ala ashrafil anbiya'i sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Continuing on those hallmarks or signs which we must be aware of. If any group has any one of these signs, then this is a danger sign. The first sign is blind conformity in aqidah, in belief, creed or absolutely everything. Because blind conformity is needed in certain situations where someone is more experienced than the subject and a person needs advice, they may resort to blind conformity in taking an opinion. So in human situations, it is not always feasible to avoid conformity or, to, uh, or blind conformity. But where is blind conformity prohibited haram? It is prohibited to blind follow and to conform with someone in creed, in aqidah. If you follow someone blindly to such an extent that if they change their opinion tomorrow, you will change your opinion with them. This according to the scholars is haram, prohibited. Even though you will still be considered a Muslim, there is a group of scholars who do not deem such a person a Muslim also. But the valid statement is that such a person is still a Muslim, but if they blind follow someone to such a degree that if that person changes their view tomorrow on a principle of religion and that person changes with them, then they leave the fold of Islam because they have resorted to blind conformity. But if they were not doing blind conformity in the first place when the person changes his view the person will not change with them because they were not following them blindly for instance a man in a Sufi group you will notice this in many Sufi groups today that because the Shaykh the peer the guide takes a certain position in creed the murids, the, the aspirants the students also take the same position simply because the peer or the Shaykh has taken that position. They do not rationalize the position. They do not understand the position. All they say is because my Peer Sahib or because my Shaykh has said this, I will follow. This is haram in Sharia. A person must know his aqidah himself 
he must know why he believes in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He must know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is one himself. Tomorrow if the shaykh or the peer decides to promote perennialism and the aspirant is a blind imitator of his shaykh and he changes with him. Or if the shaykh decides to declare Jews and Christians as guided people, the murid, the aspirant will change with them. This in itself is considered impermissible. What is the cause of people doing blind conformity in our times and in previous times? The number one reason is lack of education. If a person enters a Sufi group without education in the first place, then they become dependent upon that group or the Shaykh for their knowledge of Islam. So whatever they are told, they follow blindly, with blind conformity. But if a person had educated himself prior to joining the group, he will be aware and will have an, an informed opinion, an informed choice regarding certain things. Sometimes, however, a person may be educated and still conforms. The reason for that would be lack of self-confidence and self-determination. This can be so bad in some people that they will have an education, but they believe that for them to die upon Iman faith, they must follow their guide, their peer. This in itself is shak fil iman, doubt in the iman, doubt in faith. This is impermissible. A person cannot have doubt on his own faith. He must believe firmly that even if my spiritual guide or so-called spiritual guide moved away from Islam, I will still remain firm on Islam because I do not blindly follow my spiritual guide. The spiritual guide is there to guide me how to practice Islam, to show me the way of practicing Islam inwardly and outwardly. But if my spiritual guide moves away from Islam, I will stay firm on Islam. This is where certain Sufi groups also have esoteric doctrines, which I will mention later. For instance, believing that their Sufi guide will come into their grave and help them answer the questions in the grave. This, of course, is an innovation. This is not mentioned in the Quran or the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wa Alihi Wasallam. In some extreme cases, I've had people say to me when I quoted to them Al-Imam Abdul Wahhab Al-Sha'arani Rahimallah, they said our spiritual guide is greater than Al-Imam Abdul Wahhab Al-Sha'arani. In some cases, some of them said, our guide is greater than Al-Imam Jalaluddin Al-Sayyuti, Rahmallah. In other cases, they have said, our guide is greater than Al-Imam Ahmad Rida Khan, Rahmallah. This is a form of delusion, where a person will seem to think that his spiritual guide is greater than the masters of previous times. This delusion will also lead to blind conformity, that a person falls into blind conformity. Therefore, in conclusion on this, of this first point, I would say blind conformity is haram. Anyone who falls into blind conformity in creed, he is performing a haram act in creed. As for the second part, which I mentioned in absolutely everything, if someone has blind conformity in absolutely everything, this, leads the, this opens the door for abuse. So many cases of abuse have happened amongst so-called Sufi sheikhs. There is a case 
of a, a child molest, molestation in a, a certain person was arrested for molesting a child, but this person claimed to be a Sufi guide. The parents trusted the person to such a degree that they allowed the person to share the bedroom with their own child and this led to molesting of that child. Why, what made those parents do such choices? Blind conformity in absolutely everything. A person allows his daughter, young daughter, who is of a marriageable age to uh, appear in front of the Sufi guide without hijab, without a veil, because they trust the Sufi guide to such a degree that they have blind conformity in everything. They f blindly follow him in aqidah, in belief, and they blindly follow him in sharia also. So this blind conformity is also of young girls uh, kissing the hands of sheikhs, of Sufi guides allowing this or girls uh, dressed inappropriately and standing arm in arm with Sufi guides and then the Sufi guides claim this is calling them to Islam but the the followers will accept this why because they have accepted blind conformity in absolutely everything why did I say absolutely everything but because there are certain things which a person can uh, follow their spiritual guide and that is what is meant by the statement of Sufi sheikhs when they say the aspirant becomes like a dead body in the hand of a person washing the dead body. What are they referring to? They are referring to the spiritual path. Now the spiritual path does not contradict belief and sharia, belief and divine law. So if the Sufi guide is contradicting belief and divine law, then these statements do not apply. Also, why a person may fall into, into blind conformity many times is because of a lack of sincerity. Because they have a lack of sincerity, for instance, they want position. Certain people join Sufi groups to attain positions. For instance, attaining Khilafah, which is uh, becoming the representative of a sheikh in a certain country or a town. In other times, uh, what happens when you receive Khilafah uh, is not the real Khilafah. This is a Khilafah uh, which is passed down, a spiritual Khilafah. What happens, people tend to kiss your hands. And uh, this practice of bending down and kissing the hands as well as if they are performing uh, a ruku, bowing down to you. And in many cases, the people will start giving you money. So this gives you a position in society. Also, fame. A person achieves fame because they are unable to achieve fame with their own personality. They will latch on to the personality of a Sufi guide and therefore attain fame. So they, after this, they will have blind conformity to the Sufi guide because they have attained fame through that Sufi guide and they need to maintain their position. This is why so many times so many brothers have contacted people in Sufi orders and have questioned the Sufi masters of that order and they have been ignored. If, if the Sufi master does something which is questionable and you phone a Khalifa or a Muqaddam of that Sufi guide and the Sufi guide, uh, the Khalifa, the Muqaddam ignores your phone call, ignores your questions, what is the reason for them ignoring your phone calls? It is because they have attained fame and position or aspiring to attain fame and position through this Sufi order or the pseudo-Sufi order. In the same way, the person may attain money. This is an obvious one. Uh, another reason may be 
because of stories regarding blind conformity. What are these stories uh, regarding bl blind conformity? One example of this story is that a person had doubt that his sheikh, his guide, is sleeping with, uh, is doing adultery with a woman. All the other murids, all the other students left the sheikh. This one murid was the truthful murid, the truthful student. He stood with a towel and a bar of soap and hot water waiting for him uh, when he had finished with the woman because they could all hear the person committing the action in the room. And when he came out, he said, I've prepared water for you so you may do ghusl, you may take a bath. This is the type of stories they give. Now what this leads to is the aspirants think, no matter what action our shaykh will do, our spiritual guide will do, we must conform because there is another reality behind this outward action. They give other stories, for instance, uh, the Sufi guide holding an, a bottle of alcohol and then all the, all the murids left, all the students left except one and then they found water in the bottle. How do we respond to this claim? Firstly, you do not establish principles of religion based upon stories. How can you base uh, your entire life on stories when the principles of Islam are based from Al-Quran Al-Kareem, from from the prophetic hadith, prophetic sunnah, and from ijma', from consensus. So stories are not sufficient to make a principle of religion. Secondly, in all those stories, the actual shaykh, the actual guide, may not have invalidated sharia if the stories are true. And in some cases, it is invalid for the Sufi guide to place people in doubt regarding another Muslim. How would it be permissible? For a Sufi guide, for a spiritual guide to place people in shak, in doubt regarding the veracity of another Muslim. Because the Messenger of Allah warned against suspicion. So these stories are insufficient for a person to believe in blind conformity irrelevant to what is carried out. Another reason why a person may choose to do blind conformity is phobia. So many people have phobias that... I will give you an example that a number of people who contact me for jinn cases or black magic cases, you realize there is a wider community out there or amongst our community. There are so many people who are vulnerable. There are so many people who are vulnerable that these Sufi guides or pseudo Sufi guides who come into the UK and other countries, surprisingly, they never tour Africa or southern India or China or other regions, but they always tour the UK. When they tour the UK, there is a rich market for them. I would say, without an insult, a cattle market. This is how they view it. A rich market for them to take advantage of people who ha may have mental issues, mental problems, in so many cases, actual jinn problems, actual magic problems, that they recruit people into their Sufi groups. Those people may suffer from phobias also. Some people may have a phobia that the person I have given the oath of allegiance to is a Sayyid, is from the lineage of the Prophet If I speak up against any injustice he may have done, I may become cursed. Now recently, you heard about the case in Birmingham where a man who claims to be a Sayyid from the lineage of the Prophet slept with numerous women. He was a spiritual guide. He was from, he claims to be from the family of the Prophet ﷺ. Yet he abused, sexually abused numerous women. Those women 
may not have reported this because of phobia. That if we re uh, report this individual, we may become cursed. But the reality is if someone commits an act of injustice, they will be questionable by the Sharia, by the divine law, and also by the law of the land in which they live. So these are some of the reasons why a person resorts to blind conformity. Now the second reason or, or the second hallmark of a deviant group is opposition to Al-Quran Al-Kareem, to a sunnatul nabawiyyah and to Ijma'ah. How does this take place? A person may oppose the Quran very clearly. For instance, they may perform prostration to a grave. This is in opposition to mutawatir hadith, mass transmitted hadith, prohibiting people from prostrating to other than Al-Ka'bah, toward the direction of Al-Ka'bah al-Musharrafah in prayer. A person prostrates to a grave or a person mixes with the opposite gender, with the opposite sex and may even in some cases kiss the women, this happens. Or the person may drink alcohol or take drugs. This is clear opposition to Al-Quran Al-Kareem and the Sunnah. What happens to the aspirants? Why do they not understand that this person is in opposition to the Quran? One of the main reasons is treating the guide like a ma'asum. A ma'asum is someone who is free from sin. This is only for prophets. Now, when you ask these people in these Sufi orders, do you believe your Sufi guide is free from sin, is ma'asum? They will say no. But what do I mean by treating him like a ma'asum? Is practically, in practical terms, he is treated like a ma'asum. When he does something which is in clear opposition to the sharia, the murids, the aspirants choose to ignore it. So this in reality shows that verbally they may say, no one is above the law. No one can violate the sharia, the divine law. And no one can oppose the Quran. But when their shaykh does this, they will ignore this. This is a kind of cognitive dissonance, a dissonance of the mind where the person chooses to ignore the, not a mistake but an actual position of those Sufi guides. Another reason may be that they take the statements of those Sufi guides over the statements of Al-Quran Al-Kareem and the Hadith. An example of this is certain Sufi guides, not one. There are so many who do this, some of them in the open, some of them privately in their own circles, will make predictions every year. Some of them will say, for instance, when 2012 came, they said the Olympic Games, something will happen, stay, go to work and stay at home and do not mix with people. And those uh, people in the group then choose to n not mix with the wider society. They become limited to their own group. This keeps them limited to their own group. But nothing came about, but they took the words of their Shaykh so seriously that they, in some cases, the words of the Shaykh will supersede the Quran and the Hadith. Example of this, every year we hear a Sufi guide mentioning the appearance of Imam al-Mahdi radiallahu an. The students of those Sufi guides will take the words of that Sufi guide so seriously that if you give them a Hadith, of the Messenger of Allah which tells the actual signs 
of the appearance of Imam Mahdi, they will choose to ignore the hadith, they will give more importance to the statements of their Sufi guide. This not only happens with regard to Armageddon and the end of times and the appearance of Imam Mahdi, it also happens regarding dreams. Sometimes the dream of the Sufi guide is seen as so important that it will supersede common sense. One of them would say that the government of such country will fall within a few weeks. They give so much importance to this statement, the followers, that they will not give this type of importance to the hadith of the Messenger of Allah Another example of opposition to Al-Quran Al-Kareem and to the Sunnah and to Ijma' is opposition to the four schools. So many Sufi guides today give fatwa, legal rulings, that go in opposition to the four schools. Some of them allow their women students to travel abroad to visit them alone. They will allow their women, for instance, to take a plane ticket to Pakistan or to India or to whichever country they reside in. And they will justify this by saying it is a fard journey, an obligation for them to travel. Why is it an obligation? Because they must visit their Sufi guide. And what advice will the Sufi guide give them? Maybe in some cases take their jewelry. In, these are extreme cases. In some cases take their money. But in other cases subtlety. Remember not all uh, false Sufi guides are as blatant as for instance Bori Nori. Not as blatant as that. Some of them are subtle. Rather than milk a cow once. Would you rather milk a cow once or would you rather own the cow? You would rather own the cow. So what they do is win over the cow first. How do you win over the cow? You win over the cow by showing genuine, genuine behavior. You do not take money. You outwardly follow Sharia. And then when the person is drawn in and is enclosed by your group, then step by step you make them uh, violate the laws of Sharia and your grip around them becomes tighter. So rather than milking them once, you've milked them numerous times. We know of, inst uh, for instance, Haqbat Shah Sarkar who comes to the UK. He is someone who I would count as being blatantly uh, take, uh, and obviously making money. But he is not as dangerous as those who may have beards, may have imama, will promote their Sufi order with Sharia and even Sahih Aqidah, authentic creed. But once the person is in the group, they will tighten their fist around them and then the, uh, the abuse starts. Now abuse takes numerous forms. It could be mental abuse. It could be physical violence. It could be sexual abuse. Abuse takes numerous forms. So what they do sometimes is give fatwa in opposition to the four schools. Sometimes they may give a fatwa that uh, uh, divorce three times is one in accordance with the fatwa of Ibn, Ibn Taymiyyah. This has happened amongst certain people. So when this opposition to the Quran, the Sunnah and the Jama'ah takes place, again the person in the group uh, becomes subservient. Why they become subservient we covered previously. The third main uh, hallmark of a dangerous group or a dangerous individual is lack of transparency and deception. Lack of transparency means are you allowed to question the earnings of the sheikh or the guide? Are you allowed to go up to them and say, how do you earn your living? If this is 
not allowed, meaning they do not allow you to do so, or when you leave the building, certain bodyguards of the Shaykh will come and uh, thrash you appropriately, according to them, then in such a case you have a dangerous cult, a dangerous group. How many of the spiritual guides are you allowed to go up to and ask, how do you earn a living? So many of them own houses, country houses. So many of them own houses out in, uh, so, not in inner city areas, in suburbs, in areas which are rich and affluent. We would want to ask, how did you earn your living? How did you make this money? Where did you get this jeep from? Where did you get the house worth 500,000 pounds? Every Muslim has a right to ask scholars, shiuch, peers, anyone, regard anyone who's in public, a public figure regarding their earnings. Why do I say this? Sayyiduna Umar radiallahu an, when he delivered a sermon, a person asked him, Oh Umar radiallahu an, you have an extra shirt. Where did you attain this shirt from? So Sayyiduna Umar an said, My son Abdullah gifted me this shirt. A famous incident that took place. If our master Sayyiduna Umar an, was questioned like this in his time, every Sufi Shaykh today who comes to the UK or who resides in the UK or any other place of the world is questionable regarding his earnings. We have a right to ask them where we need the transparency regarding their earnings. Where did they receive the house from? reason why I ask is because so many people will say their students give them these uh, gifts and money. That is fine. It is permissible. But tell me this. How many people would give bay'ah, oath of allegiance, if they knew from the onset that the Sufi Shaykh takes gifts, so many, large amounts of money from his students? So many people will turn away from giving an oath of allegiance to such a person. So this is not made obvious from the onset. Rather, a person is drawn into the group. Once they have been drawn into the group, have been enclosed by the pyramid structure of the group, then the person is asked for money. They say, you may give £20 a month, £40 a month. At this point, the person will be subservient and give the money. But if they had known prior to joining the group that the sheikh and the group take a certain amount of money from the onset, how many of them will actually join the group? So many of them are also placed in peer pressure to give money also. This lack of transparency also takes place in doctrine. So, so many of them have esoteric doctrines. What do we mean by esoteric doctrines? They are not clear regarding certain beliefs until you join the group. Once you join the group, these are actual cases I have heard. One group claimed that Sayyiduna Jibreel salam gave bay'ah oath of allegiance to their shaykh. This group is based in the UK. This is an actual group. Others will claim that their shaykh is similar to a prophet. This is once you have joined the group, these type of claims come out. These are esoteric doctrines which contradict the agreed upon doctrine of Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'ah. So, this point also is different to the previous point. Why? Because they will not tell you regarding these doctrinal points until you have actually joined the group. It's a step by step process that you change the person slowly. No group 
works on a person in one go, meaning they make you attend courses, make you attend gatherings of what they call dhikrullah, remembrance of Allah, and step by step you will change, your personality will change. This leads to background checks. How many people actually do a background check regarding the person they give oath of allegiance to? So many people tour the UK, but how much of their background do we know? Some people may even be enticed into giving the oath of allegiance after having heard one speech or after having had peer pressure. Uh, peer pressure, a group of friends give oath of allegiance, therefore you give the oath of allegiance. This will bring us to the point, why are you joining such groups? Why are you joining such groups? Is it peer pressure? All your friends have joined this group and therefore you are enticed into joining this group? Or is your family uh, in this group and therefore you would have to join this group? Because so many people from rural areas in Pakistan and India have given oaths of allegiance to ignorant peers who do not follow uh, correct doctrine and correct uh, fiqh jurisprudence. And because their father has given the oath of allegiance, the son will also give the oath of allegiance. In the same way, are you giving the oath of allegiance for fame? Because once you enter the group, you associate with the leader of the group and you attain fame amongst society or materialism. So many people join a group in order to make contacts. Some businessmen will join a group to make business contacts within that group. Uh, others will join the group because they see the members of that group being affluent. I've heard of certain sheikhs telling their female students to wear pink scarves and the men to wear purple uh, ties in order to appear affluent to affluent people. So they may attain money from affluent people. This is done or to have certain haircuts and trim the beard down in order to attract a certain market. This is, they actually market their tariqahs. How can a person be a man of Allah if he is marketing himself and marketing his tariqah, his spiritual order, in order to attract people to, to gain their money from them? A man of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not do this. Some people may join the group because they have jinn problems. So they go to a person who may be able to resolve the jinn problem or make them feel that they have resolved the jinn problem. Because so many times the jinn problem may be resolved by placebo. It may not actually be resolved. The person may suffer from mental illness, but they are made to think that they are uh, cured and then they join the group. Once they have joined the group, the leader of the group has won the cow over. He may milk the cow as many times as he wants. And in some cases may win the entire family over. So the person is one, then the wife is one, the mother and father are one, and the children are one. Then the entire family goes with that group and they enclose themselves within that group and do not open themselves to wider society. So this is the first question, why are you joining? Is it because you have been told that it is wajib to give bay'ah? And you have been told, man la shaykha lahu fa shaytanu shaykhu, whoever does not have a shaykh, shaytan is his shaykh. This is the number one deception that all groups today are using. Firstly, it is not wajib for a person to give the bay'ah, the spiritual oath of allegiance. It is not wajib for a person to give this oath of allegiance. The hadith that have been mentioning bay'ah, oath of allegiance, are in reference to a khalifa. If a legitimate khalifa appears 
and the people are living within those lands, they must give their oath of allegiance to that Khalifa, to a legitimate Khalifa. As for the statement, Man la shaykha lahu fa shaytanun shaykhu, this is not a hadith of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is a statement of Abu Yazid al-Bistami rahimahullah, which has a context. If you want to read the context, read Fatawa Afriqa. In, within Fatawa Afriqa, I think question 82 and 83, Al-Imam Ahmad rahimahullah mentions the true context of this statement. So if you do not join a group and you do not give your bay'ah to a peer, a guide, you are not misguided. You are still a guided Muslim because you have the guarantee of the intercession of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa said, Shafa'ati li ahlil kaba'iri min ummati. My intercession is for people of major sins from my nation. So every major sinner is guaranteed intercession of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa This also takes me to the point regarding phobias. This phobia is used by these peers, these shaykhs, that they say, if you do not have a shaykh, you will not be saved on the Day of Judgment. Or some of them say, I will save you on the sirat, on the path. I will save you on the Day of Judgment, I will save you in the grave. The poor miskeen, the shaykh, must be asked, how do you have a guarantee that you will die on iman and faith? You have no guarantee you will die on faith. How can you give others guarantee of this? Then, this brings me onto the main principal issue. That is that we must educate ourselves. Before any of you decide to give bay'ah, oath of allegiance, you must educate yourselves. Do not join groups and organizations without checking the backgrounds of those groups. Where is their funding coming from? Where was the Sheikh born? Is all the information you receive regarding the Sheikh from himself? Is all the information you receive regarding the peer from himself and from his students? Do you, have you verified from third sources, from third persons? Have you gone to his birthplace, his home city, verified from the locality regarding his background, his education? Are his teachers alive? Can you verify from them? Or have they all passed away coincidentally? So all these things must be checked. You must do a thorough background check regarding the, any group, any person you give oath of allegiance to. The main thing is educating yourselves. How do you educate yourselves? You must not have blind conformity in creed. You must learn the correct creed of Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'ah, which is learned through books like the Tahawi Creed of Al-Imam Al-Tahawi Rahimahullah or the Sanusi Creed. You memorize these texts and study the texts. These texts do not encourage people to have blind conformity in faith in Iman. Secondly, you learn your fiqh, jurisprudence. You must learn your basics of prayer, your basics of zakat, charity, your basics of fasting. Also, remember, if you have given bay'ah, Oath of allegiance, you are not necessarily bound to one sheikh. This is also a misnomer given by so many groups that once you give bay'ah to one sheikh, you stick to one sheikh. No, you are allowed to follow all the scholars of Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'ah. You are not tied to one sheikh. The types of bay'ah which people give today is known as bay'atul baraka, the oath of allegiance for blessings. It does not count as bay'atul suluk. Suluk is the spiritual wayfaring which a person does, Al-Imam Muhammad Al-Hashmi, the Shaykh of a Shaykh Abdul Rahman Al-Shaghuri from Damascus states that the tariq, the spiritual path is nadir, nadir, jiddan, very rare to find. 
So the, the bay'ah which everyone has given, or overwhelming majority of people have given, is the bay'atul barakah, the bay'ah of blessings. You are not necessarily bound to one group or to one shaykh. It is permissible for you to follow all the shiyukh of Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'ah. So in this case, someone may question what does it mean to even attain khilafah? For instance, I have attained khilafah from so many spiritual guides. What does this mean? Does it mean I am a spiritual guide? The answer is no. Anyone who in this day and age receives khilafah from a spiritual guide, it does not make them a spiritual guide. I am saying this on record. So, so many people you will hear, they will say, uh, we have received Khilafah from X, Y, and Z, therefore we are qualified to give the oath of allegiance to people and take on students. I will say this is not the case. Uh, people like myself have been given Khilafah or the spiritual authority as a blessing. This is as a bl- you take this as a blessing, this may place some blessing in your life. This is the meaning of this. It does not mean that the person who has attained the spiritual uh, Khilafah representative of a certain guide is a spiritual guide himself. What happens is so many people I know, they go to a country, they may even spend a few weeks, a few months in that country. They attain the spiritual blessings of a sheikh, authority from a sheikh, and they return back to their home country claiming to be spiritual guides. These people are not in reality spiritual guides. And the overwhelming majority of people today who claim to be spiritual guides are charlatans. I say this on record with authority that the overwhelming majority of people who claim to be spiritual guides today are charlatans. They are lying to people. Once a person claims to be a wali, a friend of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there are conditions he must meet. Now, if anyone disputes this with me, I will say the following. Al-Imam Abdul Wahab al-Sha'rani rahimahullah wrote a book called Mawazin al-Qasirin min shiyukhin wa muridin. Those people claiming to be spiritual guides today, I challenge them that can they live up to the book of Al-Imam Abdul Wahab al-Sha'rani Mawazin al-Qasirin min shiyukhin wa muridin. If they are able to live up to that book, then maybe they are, they are qualified spiritual guides. Otherwise, they should desist from uh, money making, from recruiting people, from abusing people, from recruiting pe- people for their own causes. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide them and guide us. One final point is that Sidi Ahmad Zarouq rahimullah in the beginning of Udda Sadiq states, I wrote this book so people are able to make a distinction between a false guide and a real guide. And I will say, I delivered this lecture so people are ma- able to make a distinction. This lecture was not delivered so people can disparage other Muslims or criticize other groups. No, it is a warning for ourselves so we may safeguard ourselves. That is the purpose of this lecture. <laughs>